The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. I'll give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. Kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And what we got here today, we got a mm, inaugural sip. We got ourselves a nice, nice medium blend. I'm recording today in the uh, the cover of the cold, sober light of day uh, scheduling and all of that. So not my usual under the cover of darkness routine. Okay, so what do we got? We got a little housekeeping before we get into part two of this uh, Israeli-Lebanon situation here. So first off, got a wonderful message on LinkedIn from uh, Dayton Page. Thank you so much for the kind words. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, I always love hearing from you guys, and um, uh, I never know what to say. Thank you, but uh, definitely means the world, so thank you so much. Uh, he also mentioned a possible infamous scandals episode on Chesapeake Energy and the Aubrey uh, McClendon rise and fall. So I'll uh, be looking into that over the next um, several weeks, see what we got going on there. I don't know a lot about that off the top of my head. So we're going to look into it, see what's happening. Uh, we also have a few other interesting things that may be um, happening on the program in October. Um, but I'm going to keep those a little close to the vest till we're a little bit closer, till I know for sure everything's uh, scheduled and set up and going the way it's going to go. Uh, but I think we might might have some interesting episodes coming out around then. Um, and not to mention, you know, it's just sexier if I have some mystery in the program, right? What's going to happen in October? We don't know. Maybe nothing. Maybe something kind of cool. We'll see. So we'll see. Okay. So let's um let's get right into it. So the first part of this, we covered the um, dare I say protracted and uh, extremely vitriolic history of the Levant in the Middle East, specifically Israel, Lebanon, and that whole region, which was extremely uh, challenging you know, all the way from uh, ancient times to the Crusades. And, um, you know, we got, I think, up to basically the mid-70s, I think, where we left off uh, last go-around with the uh, Lebanon Civil War kicking off and uh, a whole bunch of other uh, stuff going on. Um, so at the end of the day, <clears throat> we've established there is a huge, huge amount of history that uh, that is that, that is a factor for these countries as we gear ourselves towards talking about these um, oil and gas fields in the Mediterranean. 
Now, um, where we left off, we left there, um, like I said, probably about the mid seventies, early, early seventies, I think. So, um, yeah, let's just, let's just dive into it. Let's see what we got here. So between 69 and 1970, the, uh, Lebanese military tried to combat the Palestinian liberation organization, but they didn't have much of the uh, forces to support fighting them. And so the PLO continued to operate in South Lebanon without much issue. Now, if you guys remember from the last episode, the, um, PLO had kind of been run out of the West Bank and out of Gaza at the time, and they had uh, crossed the border to the north, and they had set up shop in the south of Lebanon. Lebanon, since its independence from France, had had kind of a hard time uh, controlling the wilderness in south Lebanon, which allowed the PLO and the more extreme factions to kind of do whatever the hell they wanted, which included crossing the border into Israel and wreaking havoc whenever they saw the opportunity to do that. So that was a um, that was a thing that... Uh, you know, was an issue. And Israel basically put Lebanon to task and said, hey, you guys need to sort this out. And if you don't, we're going to. But the problem was that Lebanon just didn't have the uh, the the ability, the might, the forces or anything like that to actually do anything about it. And so it was kind of a, a catch-22, a lose-lose situation for everybody involved. So my 1970s, there was the um, Avivam school bus bombing where some PLO um, – Guerrillas attacked an elementary school bus full of Israeli children with RPGs that killed 12 people, nine of them were kids. Not great. Uh, in response, the Israelis destroyed four Lebanese villages with artillery strikes across the border. And again, this kind of goes back to just the hard problem that we have here, right? It's not Lebanon directly doing this. It's these these Palestinian Liberation Organization guerrillas that are doing this stuff, but they don't have bases that you can fire. It's like trying to hunt the Taliban in Afghanistan. You're having to go and try and like find people in mountains, and it's really hard to do, and you have to really go like occupy the territory and go valley by valley, mountain by mountain in a very mountainous, rugged region. And um, you know the Israelis kind of had this idea that we're just going to punish the country where you're being housed and expect them to do something to help clean this up. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a wicked, tricky, hard thing. But the problem is, you know, one, it didn't really work. Um, and two, it's just continuing to generate bad blood between these nations, right? So this pattern of attack and retaliation would continue for literally decades. I mean, all the way up into today, effectively, right? Um, there were, however, a few very slim sparks of hope that started to appear. In 1977, the Egyptian president, uh, Anwar el-Sadat, uh, took a trip to Israel okay, and spoke before the uh, Knesset, the Israeli parliament, assuming I pronounced that correctly. My uh, Israeli is not super great. Uh, at any rate, this is the first time an Arabic leader ever gave recognition uh, to Israel in that way or spoke in front of the Israeli Parliament, and this is a big hairy deal. Remember, up until this point, literally every single country in the Middle East refused to acknowledge that Israel was a real country. Um, they declared it a, a rogue nation or a pirate nation or an illegitimate country or an occupying force or something like that, but they did not recognize Israel as existing. They um, considered Israel to be occupying what should have rightfully been the state of Palestine. And um, so the fact that an, uh, an Egyptian leader went all the way into Israel and actually spoke in front of the parliament, um, and not in a vitriolic way, was kind of a shocking turnaround. Now, do, don't get me wrong, this did not – Egypt did not officially recognize Israel's right to exist at this point. They did not um, 
you know, uh, this was not like uh, any kind of long-term solution here, but it was them having a Arab head of state show up in their country and speak about a theoretical peace process um, in a way that had just never been done before. It was kind of, you know, it was a small thing, but it was a big thing, right? So Lebanon, uh, that being said, getting back to Lebanon here, was very critical to the PLO operations, um, whether or not they wanted to be. Uh, the PLO during this time even officially moved their headquarters to Lebanon's capital of Beirut in 1974. Now, in 1975, the Lebanese Civil War kicked off in full form, which would last until roughly the 1990s. And uh, this was significant for several reasons. One, it kept the Lebanese government too weak to keep the PLO from kicking up shit whenever they felt like it. And two, the Israeli military actually <clears throat> provided arms to different factions in the Lebanese civil war. And this <clears throat> civil war with Lebanon would start quite a few other sort of trickle-down effects. Um, as you uh, have heard of Hezbollah, which is the um, Iranian-sanctioned branch of their um, international uh, – revolution of, you know, extreme Islam, uh, that's, that's Hezbollah is the Lebanese branch of that. Right. Um, and as we talked about later, and we'll talk about before more in a minute, uh, they would very much come to power in a very official way in Lebanon over the next several years. But the civil war kind of gave them the opportunity to really start, um, uh, uh, capitalizing on the chaos of Lebanon during Israeli attacks and all of that, which, you know, in a very roundabout, unexpected way, you know, Israel kind of helped Lebanon without meaning to come to power in a way that um, that was definitely not part of their plan um, and kind of helped uh, Iran's long-term goal out there as well. Um, <clears throat> but like I said, we'll get into that. So by 1978, U.S. President Jimmy Carter the peanut farmer from Georgia, arranged a 12-day series of talks resulting in what are called the Camp David Accords being signed between Egypt and Israel. Now, keep in mind, uh, and this goes back to the Egyptian president visiting Israel and speaking at the parliament back in 70, um, uh, uh, there there are a couple of, excuse me, 70, um, 77 here, so it's timeline's a little off there. Uh, but keep in mind, during this time, after the last war with the Arab nations, I think it was the Yom Kippur War, uh, might have been the Six-Day War before that. I can't remember now because there are so many wars in that part of the world. It's hard to keep track of which one's which. But in the last set of major wars between Israel and its surrounding neighbors, Israel occupied a the entirety of the Suez Peninsula, right? They had everything up to the Suez Canal and even a few pieces of land on the Egyptian side of the Suez Canal. So they were occupying a fairly important piece of um, Egyptian land during that time that the Egyptians, you know, could never kick them out of. Uh, and so that was a big, big, hairy deal. So at any rate, Jimmy Carter getting the Egyptian president and the Israeli president to sit down and spend 12 days at Camp David talking about a peace plan was kind of a serious piece of business, right? I mean, of all of the Arab neighborhoods surrounding Israel, you know, Egypt had lost ostensibly the most of anyone. And, you know, Egypt was a, a relatively, for that part of the world, first-rate country. 
so the fact that they had lost that war pretty handedly and also had lost some very strategically valuable territory, which they had lost for, you know, at this point over a decade, uh, that, that was that was a big deal, right? Um, you know, Lebanon and, and Syria are pissed off about the Golan Heights, but it's just kind of a mountainous whatever, you know? It's not like it's super uh, – it doesn't have the same strategic – impact. I mean, the Sinai Peninsula has global impact with the canal there, right? And so uh, this was a really big, hairy deal for the Egyptians. But the fact that, you know, and, and I got a lot to bitch about Carter. <clears throat> um, Jimmy Carter was, you know, not high up on my list of ideal presidents. He was kind of uh, a goofy, but you know, I've said this before, I apologize for Jimmy Carter on behalf of the state of Georgia. And I also apologize for, um, uh, that congresswoman, what's her name? The the one that's always going crazy in uh, in Congress, the blonde chick. What's her name? Uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I apologize for both of them uh, coming from Georgia. Sorry about it, guys. You know we um we like to export our shitty politicians to the rest of the U.S. and get them out of the state as much as we can. So Jimmy Carter, one such example. Um, anyway. Uh, but one thing that he did do that uh, I would say is objectively a good thing is he did get the Egyptian president and the Israeli president to talk and get the Camp David Accord signed. Now, to be fair, the Camp David Accords didn't do a lot. They did a little, and they did some big things, but they didn't do a ton, okay? So first off, uh, the Camp David Accords outlined a peace plan between Egypt and Israel, but they didn't officially end the Cold War between them. They talked about plans for a Palestinian two-state solution, but they didn't actually propose or enforce any kind of a solution. Um, so, yeah, they didn't accomplish a whole lot in and of themselves. Uh, also, the UN was absolutely apoplectic at the Camp David Accords. They were very shitty about it. And the reason is because the UN... Uh, was not involved in those talks. It was purely something spearheaded by the U.S. between uh, the um, the Israelis and the Egyptians, and the U.N. was not involved in this um, this uh, roadmap at all. And so that pissed the U.N. off, and they refused to accept this as a uh, uh, as an ideal solution. Uh, the other thing that pissed the U.N. off was the fact that the Palestinians, whose, again, their statehood and lands and, and all that were being discussed and negotiated between Egypt and Israel, but the Palestinians were not at the table. They were not um, given a seat at the table. They weren't discussed with at all either. So that's a bit of a problem, and, and that one is legitimate. I mean, the UN not you know getting their panties in a wad because they weren't involved in the actual negotiations. Ah, you know, settle down, okay? Uh, but the Palestinians, if they're going to be, you know, a, a topic of conversation, and again, the Arab League, right, ostensibly their official party line is that there is no Israel and there is um, a Palestine and that Israel is occupying that Palestine. So uh, the fact that the Palestinians weren't at the table was kind of problematic. Um, but getting Israel and Egypt to sit at the table and talk was a win. So you got to kind of take, take your win, take your loss. Uh, at any rate, there were a few things that um, came from it. Uh, it did do one really, really big important thing, and that is Egypt officially acknowledged Israeli statehood and agreed to exchange ambassadors. Egypt was the first country in the Middle East to actually decide to acknowledge Israeli statehood and the legitimacy of their government and establish normalized diplomatic ties. This was a big, hairy deal, okay? 
Um, and it was such a big, hairy deal that it literally pissed off everyone else in the Arab League. They were furious. Again, they saw Egypt signing a treaty, even one that effectively did nothing except for establish normal diplomatic relations between uh, Israel and Egypt as going back on the official Arab League policy of refusing to acknowledge the state of Israel as a legitimate country. And so the Arab League actually kicked Egypt out for 10 years, which is ironic because Egypt at the time was the premier Arab nation state. They were um, politically the most powerful, politically the most prominent, uh, you know, and all of that. And, and during this time, this is the same time that the, you know, Iran probably was, but Iran fell due to the revolution, the Iranian revolution around this exact same time, um, which had Egypt stepping in as kind of the the regional power. And with Egypt being kicked out of the Arab League, that opened the doorway um, with a power vacuum that someone had to fill. And who filled it? Why, it's our boy, Saddam, bitchin' mustache, Hussein, of Iraq. Now, in 1978, the PLO, guerrilla group, raided Israel across the border and conducted what is later called the Coastal Road Massacre, which prompted Israel to decide to invade Lebanon directly, destroying several PLO bases and villages that were housing them. Uh, if the Israelis found a PLO base near a village, that village was punished by having it burned to the ground, destroyed, and everybody was forced to leave. Um so that was that was how they were handing that. Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel decided uh, to up the retaliatory ante and encouraged Israelis to begin moving into Palestinian lands in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which for the most part had been officially occupied by Israeli soldiers to one extent or another, but had generally been left to the local management of Palestinians and um, Israelis were not necessarily moving in. That changed. The Prime Minister decided we're going to start moving people in and we're going to kind of go with the old school, you know, just sort of um, uh, force our way in method that um, that the King of England tried, you know, during their first little uh, run in with Scotland back in the day. So this was problematic. But that being said, the uh, other parts of the world or the other parts of Israel there, there were some promising signs. In 1979, a year later, uh, the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty was signed, which officially ended all hostilities between the two nations and opened up trade and commerce. Also, critically, Israel agreed to return the Sinai Peninsula in its entirety back to Egypt. It was a level of cooperation between two countries, which pretty much caught the world by surprise. No one could believe it. Israel had voluntarily hand handed over these very strategically important lands um, back to the Egyptians. And now we're conducting actual economic trade. I mean, it was wild. And it pissed off the rest of the Arab nations who saw Egypt as just, you know, just not playing ball with the policy, right? Um, but, you know, there you go. On the flip side, in 1980, Israel passed a series of laws that officially annexed the Golan Heights from Syria, which they'd occupied since the Six-Day War in 1967, and another law that declared Jerusalem as the official capital of Israel. Now, this was kind of the opposite side of the spectrum, right? When it came to Egypt, they were returning lands they had conquered in the Six-Day War, and they were establishing trade. And for Lebanon and Syria, they were saying, yeah, fuck you, we're, we've been in the Golan Heights, we're keeping the Golan Heights, and we're making it official and putting it on paper. Now, uh, the UN did not much care for that, uh, for a number of reasons. One, because of Jerusalem's 
important status among several of the different Aramaic religions in the region, uh, Israel uh, or Jerusalem was supposed to be an international city, a free city that was um, officially belonged to no one. It belonged to the world. Well, Israel didn't see it that way, and they said, no, Jerusalem is going to be our capital. That's the law now, period. Now, practically speaking, for all intents and purposes, Tel Aviv remained the functional capital with Jerusalem serving more of a ceremonial role due to the, um, let's just say, conflicted nature of uh, that particular municipality. Um, But, you know, there we go. Uh, So what do we have here? So the UN and a large number of the nations were not thrilled with the situation, citing that the UN resolution had declared Jerusalem an independent free city and that also the Israeli acquisition of the Golan Heights was due to them invading Syria, which is technically accurate, but only after they were attacked first, if we're being fair. The Israeli response was to return the territories promptly. Now I'm I'm kidding. Pretty much Israel uh, Israel's response was they attacked us first, and um, they don't get to have nice things if they do that. So fuck you, we're keeping them, and that remains to this day effectively the policy. Now by 1981, a year later, the Iran Iraq war has kicked off in full swing. So Israel launched an attack on Iraq's sole nuclear reactor just outside of Baghdad to impede Iraq's nuclear weapons program. Uh, this was something they had been working on and Israel had started what would become a long-standing policy of if you try and build nukes in the Middle East, we will blow them up. And um, this was the first time that they actively proved that. Ironically, Israel itself, widely suspected to be, although they have never publicly acknowledged it, were widely uh, suspected to have uh, researched, created, and maintained their own nuclear weapons arsenal, which is pretty wild. In fact, I do a whole show on the um, the, the very secretive Israeli nuclear uh, weapons program and some of the weirdness with that. There's um, uh, some theories that they conducted nuclear weapons tests uh, in the Indian Ocean and the South Atlantic um, near South Africa, and that they were working with the uh, apartheid government in South Africa to do. I mean, there's some, some crazy history there, I and mean, we can go to that some other time. It doesn't really deal with this. But ironically enough, Israel was like, yeah, we're going to develop our own nukes, but if we catch wind of anyone building any other nukes, we are going to fucking bomb you, okay? That's just how it works. That's what we're going to do. We don't care. Done. Uh, so by 81, the Iran-Iraq war is in full swing. They uh, bomb this thing. And uh, throughout the 80s, Saddam, bitchin' mustache, Hussein, uh, decided that in retaliation, he was going to be lobbing Scud missiles at Israel regularly. Um, And he also funded and agitated a Palestinian rebellion against Israeli rule in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, at this point in time, uh, U.S. President Ronald Reagan uh, was in charge, and he decided that he was going to liberally use his trademark folksy charm, and uh, somehow or the other, he managed to talk Israel out of any heavy-handed counterattacks against Saddam or brutally putting down the rebellion. And part of the problem was, as we covered in our Reagan episode about Iran-Contra, uh, Reagan was very much playing kind of all sides against each other. Um, I think it was Kissinger that said it's a shame everyone can't lose in the Iran-Iraq war. Um and so he really didn't want Israel getting involved and um, uh, enforcing a loss on Iraq because that means that the hard right Iranian uh, Ayatollah would then win. And nobody really wanted that. But also nobody wanted Saddam, bitch and mustache Hussein to win either. So it was a very tricky situation. Reagan managed to keep uh, Israel from getting too, uh, too out of line with retaliation to where, um, where it would tip things in the favor of Iran. 
That being said, it did not stop Israel from striking hard against things that they considered were perceived threats. In 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon yet again uh, under the auspices of hunting down PLO militants and decided um, while they were in the neighborhood, they may as well just lay siege to the capital of Beirut, which would last for seven weeks. During that time, they shelled the city with artillery and destroyed over 500 buildings and killed an unknown number of PLO militants, but also killed around four to 5,000 Lebanese civilians. Uh, this would cause a huge amount of political backlash for very obvious reasons. Uh, tactically, it was a win for Israel. They forced the PLO to relocate to other countries outside of Libya and to flee. But strategically, it caused them a lot of political problems, as most of the nations, including the U.S., saw this as an unjustifiable aggression um, of convenience. And also, attacks on civilian targets were unwarranted. President Reagan even considered levying sanctions against Israel if they didn't withdraw and told them as much. Reagan said that the U.S. would no longer support Israel in any way if they did not end the siege and stop bombing civilian targets, which they did. Now, ironically <clears throat> and tangentially related, Osama bin Laden, uh, who I think we all know who that is, Osama bin Laden alleges that he was actually in Beirut at the time of this conflict and that seeing the towers in Beirut fall to American-supplied weapons used by Israel was supposedly part of his inspiration to topple the Twin Towers. Now, uh, I don't know whether he was there or not. It certainly sounds like a very convenient story um, uh, made by an asshole to uh, justify his bad actions. Um, but that is that is the story that Osama bin Laden likes to tell about why the Twin Towers were targeted. Is he wanted to um, get revenge on behalf of the Lebanese people for the um, uh, the towers of Lebanon being bombed. Um, don't really matter now. Osama bin Laden's dead, so fuck him. I think we're uh, pretty safe to say that. Anyway, moving right along. So the uh, Israeli military withdraws from the capital. But um, surprisingly, this did not magically solve their political crises with Lebanon. The civil war was still in full swing in Syria, and sending new forces in as peacekeepers um, was uh, an issue. By February of 1985, Hezbollah was uh, coming into fruition as the Lebanese franchise of the Iranian Revolution, the uh, hard-right Islamic militants, as we've discussed, and their stated manifesto was... A couple of key points. First, they wanted to expel Amer America uh, from the Middle East. Not unlike their uh, Iranian uh, uh, patrons who wanted to get rid of all Western influence in the Middle East. They also wanted to um, get rid of uh, American support for Israel. They wanted to get uh, rid of the French from Lebanon. They wanted to, and uh, this is their stated purpose. Uh, this is, I mean, their words, not mine. Drive in Israel into the sea, and establish a clerical Muslim Ayatollah over Lebanon uh, under the global Ayatollah in Iraq. Boy, oh boy, or uh, Iran, excuse me. Boy, oh boy, doesn't exactly sound like something we want. Uh, at any rate, Hezbollah took the place of the PLO in many ways when it came to launching raids against Israel from Lebanon. Um, and at this point, uh, Hezbollah is – they're Lebanese. Now it's Lebanese that are deciding to do this, and they want revenge against Israel for the retaliations. They want to do all these things that Iran wants them to do, and this is a problem. At any rate, <clears throat> the civil war ended in 1990, and Hezbollah continued its 
uh, fighting south of the border, resulting in several Israeli deaths. And we know how well Israel handles that. They, of course, launched a bombing campaign in 1993 called Operation Accountability, where they bombed, artillery struck, or airstruck over a thousand buildings in Lebanon in revenge. Uh, they launched Operation Grapes of Wrath in 1996 with the same goal of bombing 1,000 different buildings <laughs> in <laughs> Lebanon. I mean, man, at what point do you look at this cycle of we're going to go over, we're going to kick the ant nest, we're going to blow up something Israeli, and then we know they're going to air bomb our country and blow up 1,000 buildings? That's the plan. Like, at what point does everyone just take a deep breath and go – this clearly isn't working. Why don't we sit down at a table and figure this shit out? Um, I mean, really, this is ah, it's just endless. Okay, so in April of 1996, an Israeli-Lebanese ceasefire understanding was agreed to. It was an informal written agreement between Israel and Hezbollah brokered by President Bill Clinton. Uh, which ended the military conflict between the two sides tacitly, or it put a ceasefire into place. And there were a few stipulations that the Israeli-Lebanese ceasefire understanding uh, delineated. Both sides agreed to end cross-border attacks specifically on civilian targets. They could still attack. Uh, Hezbollah was still allowed to attack Israeli defensive forces if they wanted to. Uh, Israel was allowed to cross the border and do retaliatory attacks against Hezbollah forces specifically, but both sides were to avoid attacking civilians. Um, that's a very weird way to like what, like I get it. I guess it's an improvement, right? Get the civilians out of the line of fire, but how about we just stop shooting each other? Can we maybe do that one? Can we just stop saying it's okay to like fight the other side and cross the border and, and do like whatever. Anyway, so that's where we're at now. Of course, this didn't just, this didn't stop the violence, um, it just made it a, a tiny little bit more targeted military-on-military military action, so to speak. So again, it's a baby step, sort of kind of in the direction of the right direction. Now, during the 2000s, Hezbollah, in addition to its ongoing skirmishes with Israel, was working very hard on getting its party members elected into the Lebanese parliament, something they would be extremely successful at over the next two decades. <clears throat> and likewise, with the end of the Lebanese civil war, the Lebanese parliament in March 1991 dissolved all armed militia groups with the exception of Hezbollah, who were allowed to remain armed and intact, and they also pardoned all political crimes. Now, <clears throat> what this did was it was a way for them to end the Lebanese civil war, bring everyone under the umbrella, give everyone a blanket amnesty. Um, but Hezbollah was the most powerful militant group by the end of the civil war, and the only way to get them at the table was to give them a level of legitimacy. They could maintain their weapons, they could receive that same blanket amnesty um, and and do their thing, and they would be, you know, sort of granted um, uh absolution for their past actions. Okay. So by 1998, the South Lebanon army had completely collapsed and was overrun by Hezbollah, who basically just took this opportunity to, to reamass their forces and then just straight up attack the legitimate Lebanese military. Um, they overran the army. They wiped it out, um, basically giving completely uh, getting complete control over the south of the actual country in a way that the, the Lebanese military couldn't respond. Furthermore, they won a, um, uh, a huge amount of seats in the parliament during those elections, giving them legitimate voting power in the legislature of the country, which is insane. Uh, 
that would be like the equivalent of Al Qaeda winning like 80 to 100 seats in the House of Representatives in the U.S. Like that would be just sort of a problem, wouldn't it? Like maybe we shouldn't let that happen. Um, so anyways, that's kind of where we're at there. <clears throat> um, so – uh, 1998, like I said, the Southern Army had collapsed, been overrun by Hezbollah. They had gotten seats in Parliament, and they also began um, holding the land and forcing out any official Lebanese institutions like the Lebanese military and saying, hey, uh, we're holding this as a Hezbollah autonomous state. By uh, 2006, they had um, initiated some more diversionary rocket attacks on Israeli military positions near the coast while other Hezbollah groups crossed the border and ambushed Israeli military convoys. This kicked off yet another brief war with Israel, who responded by massive airstrikes and artillery barrages, displacing some one million people and blowing the fuck out of anything that they could set their sights on. By August, um, the UN Security Council demanded a ceasefire between the two parties, and uh, with um, uh, with neither Israel or Hezbollah seeing a quick or easy win as an option, they tacitly agreed to a ceasefire. Um so, yeah, there we go. Yet another conflict here. Now, keep in mind, Lebanon's leadership was desperate to keep Hezbollah from kickstarting these conflicts. The Lebanese prime minister, um, Siniora, promised to rein Hezbollah in to prevent further conflicts with Israel and even said that they were never going to be any uh, – there was never going to exist a truly sovereign Lebanese state as long as Hezbollah existed. The problem is Hezbollah has officially been voted in to have many seats in parliament, so they are a de facto player at the table, uh, even though the non-Hezbollah members of the government were wildly against them. Uh, likewise, the former Lebanese president, Kimiel, uh, said Hezbollah took unilateral action but its repercussions will affect the entire country. And yeah, that's correct. That's exactly what happened, and that's exactly the way Israel designed its retaliation to work, right? We're going to punish everyone for these bad actors, and the hope is y'all will clean your house up. Now, the problem is, given the long and bloody history, many in South Lebanon still saw Hezbollah as fighting for them and the Palestinians and not as aggressors, which ensured that Hezbollah continued to get elected to parliament and had a lot of public support, whereas the government of Lebanon was seen as weak and ineffective by a lot of the populations in the southern part of the country. At any rate, uh, low-level conflict would continue to the present day as Hezbollah has gained more and more legitimacy by winning significantly large numbers of seats in the Lebanese parliament, and they don't appear to be going anywhere, uh, especially now that northern Iraq is practically uncontrolled uh, since the end of the Saddam regime, thus allowing Iran to provide an endless amount of both money, supplies, and weapons to their baby revolutionary front. And they have that land bridge across the uncontrolled northern Iraq to do just that. So there we go. Now, this gets us to the gas fields and the maritime dispute that I promised you something like an hour ago and in, in an episode ago. Now, the problem is you see, in the past 3,000 years of history, the border between Israel and Lebanon has been, let's just say, a little fluid. And considering that Hezbollah and, by default, Lebanon consider chunks of their southern territory occupied by a state that they still, to this day, don't even officially acknowledge as existing, and Israel, who feels like they have been attacked so many times that the borders are what they are, um, 
they're minor, just a handful of degrees of variation between Lebanon's claims and Israel's claims. But these degrees, when moving in a straight line out to sea to the edge of each nation's exclusionary economic zone, results in a narrow pie-shaped wedge of land that is about 15 kilometers wide or about five-ish miles wide um, at its widest point, where each side claims it as their own. Now, for the most part, this maritime border disagreement has existed as far back as the 1940s, which angle to use for this uh, line out to sea. Uh, but at the end of the day, who gives a fuck about 15 kilometers of seawater, really? Well, it turns out when there's a large gas field discovered there, and the best place to exploit it is within this 15-kilometer sliver, naturally, then suddenly everyone cares. So negotiations Dealing with these fields started as far back as 1910, but they were more complicated by the fact that Lebanon and Hezbollah do not recognize Israel as a legitimate state and um, don't have formal diplomatic relations with them. So everything had to be done through intermediaries, and none of the actual parties, i.e. Hezbollah, Lebanon, or Israel, were willing to meet face-to-face, nor were they even willing to sign the same documents to, uh, uh, to institute any kind of a treaty. That being said, eventually in October of 2022, both companies, both countries reached an agreement brokered by the U.S. uh, uh, special mediator who had been appointed uh, over the course of two years came to an agreement. And the deal was your classic kindergarten teacher brokered deal. Lebanon gets control of the Aquana gas field regardless of where everyone thinks the border is. Israel gets control of the Karish fields regardless of where everyone thinks the border is. Hezbollah gets to still refuse that uh, Israel is a real state or offer any terms of peace or security assurances, and Israel has made it clear that if anything happens to their gas production, then it will happen to both gas production fields. You know, diplomacy. All right, that's what we got for this one. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Hopefully it was uh, uh, educational and uh, taught you a little something-something. At the end of the day, uh, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I think I actually control part of that uh, sea lane uh, off the coast of the Mediterranean. So I'm going to need to file my my claim on that. (laughs) See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.